Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, welcome back, Startup Grind Global Podcast. This is Chris Jonu, and today we have Steve Hoffman, aka Captain Hoff, who is the captain and CEO of Founderspace, um, ranked number one by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazines as the incubator of choice for overseas startups. Um, Steve's an incredible entrepreneur, background in television, interactive television, biggest clients you can imagine, NBC, MTV, Warner Brothers, so on and so forth and mobile and gaming, including mobile games, some of the biggest franchises. Uh, again, Tetris, Wheel of Fortune, Tomb Raider. So incredible founder, goes on to start founder space and and, um, and um, scale that around the world and then write these books, Make Elephants Fly, Surviving Startup, The Five Forces. Definitely check them out. Um, I didn't really know what to expect from this interview and I was just kind of blown away by Steve's energy and and his story really loved it hope you do too cheers welcome steve how are you doing i am doing great mate i i owe you a couple of beers i'm going to start with that and i'll explain to the audience later <laughs> and i'm coming to australia to collect them as soon as All right, done 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 steve i'm i'm very excited to to be speaking with you today um such an incredible bio and i want to tap on as much as much of it as i can um but usually what I do is, is go back a little bit. I'm going to take you back and ask the question, was there a mother or father that's an entrepreneur? The answer is no. So my father actually admitted to me that he would have made the worst business person ever. And the smartest decision he ever made was to become a professor. So he was actually a rocket scientist at MIT and so, so cliche, so cliche. Steve. So cliche. And, 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 you know, he was a complete nerd. He had pocket protectors, everything, right? He completely into, into, you know, his field. And my mother was also not a business person. She was a fine artist, a painter and sculptor. So I don't know if their combination of genes ended up making me an entrepreneur. Who knows? Or maybe it's just a random fluke of my life. But so, but yeah, so you start, end up following your father's footsteps or up, I guess under your father's recommendation, you have quite a serious degree. Yes. And you end so, up studying engineering, computer engineering, right? Yeah, my father said, son, you must study computers. They're gonna change everything. And this was in the early days and he was right. And so I took his advice, studied electrical computer engineering. And my mom also said, you know, I, I used to make films as a kid. That was my passion. I made over 50 movies as a child and all my friends as actors. And I thought I would grow up to be a filmmaker. But my mom and dad both said, look, do you want to starve? If you do, go into the film business. If not, study engineering. What happened was I got my degree and I actually did quite well in engineering. I have a mathematical mind. And then I had a lot of job offers coming in, but I turned them down because I 
at that point decided I am going to make films, even if it's totally impractical. So I was fortunate enough to get into one of the top film schools in the world, USC. I went there, I got a degree, um, and then I was thrust into the real world. What's, what does that mean? <laughs> that means in film school, they prepare you to make films, but they don't get you a job. And in Hollywood, the way it works, it's more of who you know than what you know. So I, you know, I literally didn't know anybody. I just made a bunch of movies. And what I did was I decided to do the brute force method. So I got the Hollywood directory, which has all the different uh, production companies and producers. And I literally wrote letters to the top 150 of them. And then I waited and I got just three responses, just three people. The first one who responded was actually the producer of Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. So it's pretty nice. cool. He called me up, but the first thing out of his mouth was, I don't have a job for you. I just wanted to <laughs> say hi. So we talked, but there was no job, but it was fun. The second respondent was Disney. And I thought, wow, I have it made. So it was the head of production at Disney. So I got all ready, went in there for my first real job interview. And the head of production of Disney, you just, the meeting was going great. Like, you know, I was blowing it away. And then she asked me a trick question. Mm -hmm. She said, do you watch Disney movies? Now, being the naive film school student, I answered, no, I used to watch them when I was a kid, but I now watch Fellini and Godard and all these artsy Hollywood films that Disney doesn't care about at all. And I went on and on and on about them and her face just went totally blank. And I could see in her eyes that the interview was over and she couldn't get me out of her office fast enough. So I had totally blown it. Just that one question. So I had one more time up at bat before I struck out. My, my third one was Chuck Freed. And he, at the time, was one of the top Hollywood TV producers. He had this big building right across from the Man Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard with his name and lights on the top. And he invited me into his office. Real subtle. Which was this <laughs> enormous office, like you would imagine a Hollywood producer should have, a gigantic office with Emmys on the wall and all his awards and, and all his posters of his films. And I sat down in front of him and I was like, I can't blow it this time. I have to get the job. So he, he looked at me and he goes, Hoffman, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a writer and director of movies. And he said, let me think about it. And I waited. And he gave me the job, the coveted job of being a reader, which is the lowest of the lowest jobs. And what you do as a reader is literally your entire job is to read really awful screenplays and, and tell the producers who don't want to read them that they're no good. So basically, you're the filter. You're a filter. You filter out all the bad stuff. And if you stumble maybe one in a hundred off something really good, then you push it up the ladder. So that was my job. But I worked like crazy and I didn't take no for an answer. And in a very short time, literally months, I was promoted to a TV development executive position. 
And so that was my break into Hollywood. And just curious, you know, looking back now, was there any scripts that you said that was garbage and they went on to be successes? Just curious. Not that I know of. Oh, good, good. <laughs> you did good. I think I did. And, you know, when I was there, I, was, I worked there for a while. It was fantastic, but I still wasn't a writer-director. And I wanted to make, be creative. My goal was to make my own projects. And Hollywood is a machine, like it's a machine, you know. So, and I was just a little cog in the wheel. So I decided I'm going to change this. Like, I'm going to do something totally different. And I heard from one of the producers in our company that his cousin was the founder of Sega. And Sega is a game company. They made the Genesis at the time, and they just passed up Nintendo to become the number one game company in the world. And I went to him and said, I want to work for your company. I want to, I want to design games because that would combine my engineering background and my film background. And it just so happened that he said, we want somebody from Hollywood. We've been waiting for you to walk in the door. So literally, they flew me to their Japan headquarters, and I got my dream job like working in the top game company, designing games. Awesome. Well, it was my dream job for a year. And after a year, I got restless. I was like, look, I don't want to design games for them. I want to design games, my own ideas for me. And so I got that entrepreneurial bug and I decided I'm going to head back to America. I'm going to Silicon Valley and I'm going to start my own game company. And literally that was the beginning of my journey down the startup path. Nice. So was that a matter of talking to VCs? How did that kind of, how do you get the ball rolling Silicon Valley video games from Hollywood? How does that all come about? In these days, well, I, there was no, there were no incubators. Uh, VCs were very close, tight knit community, really hard to get in front of. And I knew nobody right in Silicon Valley. So I just landed there and I couldn't get money for my games. So I bootstrapped it like entrepreneurs do. Like I literally decided I'm going to make these myself. And I coded the whole thing, did the artwork, you know, got some people to contribute sound and other stuff. And my first game, because I was limited in what I could do, the scope, I decided to focus on a game that teaches people to be entrepreneurs. So that was my first game. It was called Gazillionaire. I, yep. I bootstrapped that game into existence. And literally that game got picked up by the number one uh, PC game publisher in the world. And in these days, you know, PC gaming was huge. And they picked it up and literally put it, they distributed it everywhere. And that game did incredibly well. So Gazillionaire did incredibly well. And surprisingly, Gazillionaire is still around today. We, have, we upgraded it, but it's still out there. People are still playing it. Wow. And, I went on to produce two other games, you know, Zapitalism, Profitania. They were all these games that teach you business because that became the, the niche. So it was combining my entrepreneurship, my engineering, and my desire to be creative, like to do art, to create stories and all these things. So these games went out there. They did really well. After I did that, I decided I want to do something bigger. So I partnered with my ex-film school partner, and she was in New York working for this a big ad agency, heading up kind of their interactive creative side. And we decided that we would launch our own company together. And it was called Spider Dance. And it was the very beginning of the internet. And we created this company that was all about um, combining television broadcasts, which is going back to my film background, 
with online interactive entertainment. So it was a merger between the two, between Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And that company, like we nailed it. We got our first show uh, with MTV and at uh, Viacom. And basically that show was so huge. It got, in those days, it was hard to get, you know, 100,000 users. We got a million users on this, on this online application that synced directly to the TV broadcast where you could play along with a TV game show. So it was a big hit. We were doing really well. We raised a lot of venture capital and I was off to the races. I wow. did, I, after that, I did two more venture funded startups and then I launched Founderspace, which is what I do today. And Founderspace is all about, it's a startup incubator, a global startup incubator. And, and, and don't, let's not skip over these other venture-backed startups for a second. So I knew that there was, um, when, when does the mobile games come in? I remember Tetris, Wheel of oh, Fortune. Oh yeah, Tetris, Wheel of Fortune, X-Files, Tomb Raider. Yeah. So yeah. at a certain point in my career, I uh, decided um, that mobile was gonna be really big. And I wanted to get into the mobile space because we were transitioning. If you go back yeah. in time, you know, you know, everybody was on PCs and then, you know, then cell phones came in and these were the flip phones. These were early, this was really early in mobile before Apple, before the iPhone, like it's early. So I decided, well, mobile is going to be big. Mobile games are going to be, you know, as huge as or bigger than PC games or anything else. And of course it turned out to be that way. I got lucky, but the biggest company at the time was Infospace, a startup that had kind of went public. And I was brought in to basically uh, take charge of their production. And I was, I was basically studio head for Infospace. And then we basically started taking all the top brands out there, you know, you name it with the top brand that we could get and converting them to mobile, putting them on mobile um, in the early days. And we built out a whole server system. Actually, it was a startup we acquired that had built out the server system that made uh, the games you could play like Tetris, you could play Tetris, but for prizes. You could play poker for prizes. You could play Wheel of Fortune for prizes. So people would play online together and compete on leaderboards and they'd get mailed gift certificates and other rewards. Incredible, incredible. So it's like you would seem like right on trend a number of times. Can I ask, before we get into the kind of the founder space story and, 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 and into the, the books, but you know, like, um, well, tell me about some of the, the failures, right? Because I'm just curious, like, you know, I know it's, it just sounds like it's highlight to highlight, but I know the reality in, you know, entrepreneurs and the fact that you've gone to the next one and been successful means that there was some, some probably some tough times in between. Oh, All right. There are always tough times. Yeah. And I think I've had my share of tough times. I like to talk about my failures because I actually believe they've made me a better uh, mentor to entrepreneurs, a better teacher to entrepreneurs. And now that I'm running an incubator, that's really important to me. Definitely. And I'm also, I wrote my book called Surviving a Startup because I know how hard it is to survive. So a lot of these things seem like a sure bet. Like with Spider Dance, like we literally rocketed to like number one in our sector, like interactive television, we were the one everybody was watching. We had deals with NBC, Warner Brothers, Turner Broadcasting, History Channel, it goes on and on. Like everybody wanted to work with us. And we were doing so incredibly well 
that a big public company came out and made us an offer to acquire us for like an amount that was, was you know, would have set us up for life. And then our venture capitalists turned to them and they said, no, we will not take this offer. This company's wow. on fire. We're not going to take the offer. Well, that didn't seem like a bad decision at the time. Yeah. But six months later, the dot-com bubble burst, literally right. burst. And we were doing this thing called interactive television. It was totally new. The TV networks weren't making any money off of it. They were paying us a lot of money. So we were making money off of it. But for them, it was just like an experimental thing you know, that they were trying out. And as soon as the dot-com bubble burst, like NBC was our big client. Yep. We were doing the weakest link game show for them at the time. They literally went from 250 people overnight down to three people. Wow. And, the, and the three people that were left, one of them was the head of NBC Interactive. He turned to, he turned to me and he said, Steve, we love your show. We love, you've done a fantastic job, but we can't pay you anything. We can't even sell your ads, you know, in this market. So you can, you can keep doing them for free. And if you can sell the ads, you can make some money. Well, that was a world of hurt. And I will tell you, there's nothing like watching your startup go from like a rising star to also a crashing comet. Like it's just like some meteor slammed into the earth. We had to lay off everybody. We had, um, we had borrowed. We not only got venture funding, but we had borrowed a lot of money from these in, uh, venture banks that basically loaned startups millions of dollars. And yeah. they, the venture bank was now in bankruptcy because it was a dot-com bubble meltdown. And they, they hired this ex-Marine to come after us and like get the money. <laughs> and he was like, you're going to give us the money. And I'm like, we don't have any money. <laughs> we don't, we, nobody will touch us now because our revenue just went to zero overnight. And, and we have spent all the money that we got. And what I did was I actually avoided bankruptcy. I just, I told him, I said, look, the most valuable thing we have is our intellectual property. You can have that. I will just sign it over to you and you just forgive our debt. And he did that. So we actually made it, we just wound down the company and I moved on. Um, I ended up writing a book on game design after that. So that was like my very first book with my partners from the company, the co-founders. We all wrote it together because we had been through this thing and we really understood the process. Um, so that's what happened. So it was a failure. And I will tell you, it was such a, it was so hard on me that there was a period of time where I thought, I don't want to do a startup again. This is just too hard. Like, you know, you watch your baby crash and burn and you're just like, it's too hard. It's like, we had so much of ourselves invested in this. It's such a, we really were passionate about it. And to watch it just crater because not, not anything we did. It's just like the market tank. Uh, yeah. We, I was like, I can't do this anymore. So that's why I went off and wrote that book. Like, I was like, I'll just focus on game design, something creative, and we'll work on this. All of us were like, we were trying to, it was like our recovery from, from this disaster, this train wreck. And, uh, but sure enough, I got, you know, I actually, at that point, after I wrote the game design book, that's when I went into InfoSpace and did, saw the mobile game thing. So I went from failure to, uh, you know, a new opportunity, which is really what entrepreneurs have to do. You literally, uh, no matter how hard the failure is, you can't dwell on it. You have to push yourself forward. That's it. Well, and you had the lessons, right? You had all the lessons. Yes. And, and I just, you know, it's such a funny thing, right? Because in, in a view, other, other, you know, other founders where they, they get, they have the exit, right? And it's just, it's just a matter of timing and, and, 
um, yeah, like such a hard call to make, right? I imagine you, everyone thought everything's perfect. Why would we sell now? And then, you know, I've talked to other founders where they're like, they get deep, deeply depressed because they did sell, you know? Yeah, and they may and, have sold themselves yeah. short. A lot of times they did sell themselves short. Yeah, or they just like, that was what they loved and built and they were probably happy to, you know, in retrospect, just kind of stay running that thing or, you know, seeing where, where it could go, right? Yeah. And uh, well, yeah. Hindsight yeah. is twenty twenty, And in this exactly. case, I would have been much happier uh, having sold it and been miserable <laughs> with money in my pocket. <laughs> yes. yes, depressed, but rich. <laughs> yes, I mean, if you're rich, come on. Don't, you can't complain that much. Exactly. All right. So hit the mobile mobile um, space. Get back 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 on top. Start to write about you know these lessons you've learned along the way. And then when does the the kind of the incubator or what? How does it all kind of play out from there? Is there the more books that you write? When does the incubator come in? Can you just tell me the journey after kind of info space or even from info space? Yeah, it's it's a crazy. There's too much to tell for your podcast, but for I'll, I'll answer your question. Basically, um, what I and when I fa started Founder Space, um, I was literally giving advice to my friends, like on how to raise capital because they hadn't done it, how to put together a business plan. So it was just something I was doing over coffees. Like we'd go out for coffee, we'd talk, I'd, I'd help them out. But then they had a lot of questions. So I started to answer those questions on my, on my blog and I called my blog Founder Space. And that just kept growing. More and more people kept coming. And Eventually we decide, oh, we're going to get all these entrepreneurs together and introduce them to investors and lawyers and, you know, marketing people to help them get to the next level. And then that morphed into an incubator because I, one of my friends in San Francisco had this big space and we said, hey, we could, let's partner on that. Let's make that an, uh, uh, an accelerator incubator space. So we did that. And then people from all over the world, since we are early, started to hear about founder space and actually come to us. And they started to invite me abroad So and, and opportunities. So at one point, I got invited to China. And this is early on when China was just kind of getting into the internet space. I mean, they had Alibaba and stuff, but really there, there wasn't a big startup community in China, not like there is today. So I went there and I gave a talk and people liked my talk and they invited me back. So I came back a few months later and I gave another talk. And then I saw another opportunity. I was like, wow, China is about to pour a trillion dollars of government money into growing its startup ecosystem. We already have this figured out. They're looking at me from Silicon Valley as like the answer. And I decided to launch Founder Space in China. And it just, because it was timing, right? The right time, everything was you know, just taking off. Founder Space grew like crazy. And like today we have our incubators in Hangzhou, where Alibaba is, in Shenzhen, yep. where Tencent is, in Nanjing, in Xi'an, in Wuhan, all these different cities. We have founder space there. And as I was growing founder space, I thought, you know, it would be really great to write a book. So on kind of innovation and what I'm doing with these startups, both for the US and for the world market. And my first book was Make Elephants Fly, which is all about how entrepreneurs innovate, come up with that big idea, their elephant that seems impossible to get off the ground and they make it fly. So that book took off. And literally I was on like national television and I was broadcast and I didn't think much of it at the time, but 
you know, a few weeks later, people start walk up to me and say, you're really famous in China. Like everybody knows you. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you talking? Are you serious? So in the startup community in China, like overnight, I was like super famous. And, and I wasn't even trying to do that. It was just like happened. And so we have, you know, life is crazy. You kind of go where you, where opportunity is and where, where you, you know, originally I went to China just for, they were offering me a free trip to China, right? And I had never been there. Like I don't speak Chinese, but um, the next thing I know I was really famous and our, and that has just gone on and on and we expanded around the world. So we work with a lot of other incubators and accelerators and governments all over the world in South Korea, Taiwan, all across Europe. And that's our business now. And I am just, as you can probably tell, I'm a passionate guy and yeah. I'm just passionate about engaging with entrepreneurs, about training them, about helping them. And one, one thing I have to tell you is like yeah. startup grind. Like we, you know, one of the things we did in China was I became really good friends with the uh, people at Startup Grind. And we just, I, I basically uh, gave a ton of Startup Grind talks <laughs> across China because it's a great place to connect with like the foreigners in China and Chinese like who could speak English. It was really good experience. Yeah, we're pretty we're pretty big in China. Not as big as Steve Hoffman, but we, you know, we're <laughs> you guys are big. Trust me, you guys are big. Your Chinese yeah. thing is cooking, and it was fun. Like I would, I did all sorts of collaborations like that. Incredible. Yeah, I'm still doing some work for. Uh, I work in. Uh, so I work with startup bootcamp and also, yeah, Nestle in China, one of the innovation program. Yeah, for them. Great. Then we have maybe we'll be working together. <laughs> There you, go, there you go and then and then so founder space so just kind of globally taking off and then um and then and then china how, how does it how does it roll how did it happen like, what was the growth kind of like in china was it just kind of franchised or you know joint ventures how does that kind of roll out that's a great question because i had to think very carefully about this now china is a totally different system than the u.s and in china uh, as you probably know, relationships are everything. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, within China, you can't really count on somebody uh, if you just meet them and do business. And contracts don't mean anything. Like you, you can sign whatever you want with them. And as soon as it's not to their advantage, they will ignore the contract and do whatever they want. That's just like par for the course. But what they won't do is they won't, they will always treat people who they have a deep relationship with very well. And those people have networks. And how you know you have a good relationship isn't that you have a good one-on-one -on -one relationship because that doesn't matter. You can be pretend you have a good relationship one-on-one, -on -one, but what matters is the network. Do you know all the same people they know? Do they know all the same people you know? If they uh, end up screwing you over, are they going to get a bad reputation within that network? That is the key to doing business in China. Now, all I knew when I went there is I didn't speak Chinese. I'd never studied Chinese culture, never even done business there um, with Chinese. What I did know is that you have to be careful. And so instead of all these people came up to me right away, especially as I was starting to gain popularity and they were like, we want Silicon Valley in China. We want to sign a deal. We want to be your exclusive Chinese partner. Everybody said that. Everybody wanted to do joint venture. You know what I told them? Mm -hmm. I told them all no. I said, no, because I needed to learn. I need to figure out how to do business in China. And it, I didn't want to get locked into somebody who I didn't really know and I couldn't really trust. 
and that would end up being a problem for me down the road. So I said, no, 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 no. And then I took a different approach. I started to say yes, once I started to figure it out, but to small deals, little short-term deals. Oh, we'll do this event together. We'll do this program together where we teach entrepreneurs. And out of those relationships, I started to understand who I could trust, who I couldn't trust, how the system worked. And so taking baby steps when you enter a market like China is really important. Unless you're working with foreign multinationals, then it's different, right? Or even yep. a big corporation like Huawei or Hire or something like that. That's different. They're going to play by the international rules. But if you're working with the people I was working with, which are just like scrappy entrepreneurial types, like you, you've got to be careful and you've got to take it step by step. So I signed all these little deals. And then I kept the ones, the people that I liked, I would sign bigger deals. And eventually I started to sign incubation strategic partnerships. I didn't do a joint venture. And I'll tell you why. Because I heard, as what I learned in China, is that if you're the foreign side of a joint venture, they're going to control everything. And at the end of the day, any real value that you create, they will extract it. And what they may leave you with, if you have somebody unscrupulous, is a lot of debt and a huge legal headache. Because they can literally, like there, I heard horror stories, like people who started joint ventures and then their, their partner over there did all these deals under the table and bought land and sold things and they just wind up completely screwed. So instead of doing that, I did structured, everything was contractual and where I was indemn indemnified, founder space was indemnified in the contracts. And basically we let them run the local operations because honestly, we don't know all the labor laws. We don't know, you know, how to work with the government officials. That's really what Chinese do, right? And yeah. then we, on top of that, would layer our expertise in training entrepreneurs the Silicon Valley way. So, and then we would share revenue. So that model worked really well and it was much safer for us. And that allowed us to expand in China at a very low risk. Yeah, I love it. I love this kind of you know, let's, let's try an event together and kind of just build up the trust and just see how they deliver the small things. Cause pretty, it is pretty much, you know, a good indicator of how they'd handle the rest of the business. Right. It totally is. And I tell entrepreneurs that, you know, start, you know, you don't have to start with the whole enchilada. You could start with one bite, see if it tastes good. And then you could take another bite and then, you know, eventually, you know, you can get the five course meal. Incredible. Um, all right. So, okay. So now things seem to be going well. You're expanding internationally. You, what do you feel comfortable enough to start writing more books? What happens after after Founder Space? Or this is still very much the journey you're on now. So it is my journey. I am Founder Space. So that's what I do full time, and I love it. I did my next book is the one that just came out, Surviving a Startup, which is really. Everything I learned on my own experience, as you can see, you've heard some of my war stories, not them all, and really working with hundreds of entrepreneurs around the world, seeing you know, what they have to do to actually bounce back, how they overcome obstacles, how they deal with the emotional distress of being in a startup, everything. Can we, can we talk about some of that for a minute, right? Because um, you know, I was just talking about this with my wife last night, right? I'm like, you know, on a call, you know, with, 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 with the boss and it's late. I know it's late there, right? Incredibly late. And I'm like, I have so many meetings a day and you're like, you know, this is 8 PM, you know, and these guys are still going plus dealing with a hundred times more headache and I'm headaches than, than I am. Right. And I'm, I'm stressed and I'm just thinking, yes. 
yeah it is it is it a matter of as you mature as an entrepreneur founder that you're able to absorb the stress less i'm just trying to think like how do how do you how can how can these you know this this guy still be doing this right or how can you still be doing this 20 years later and love you know, it right yeah. and actually love it so yeah you really you know, I used to put myself under an inordinate amount of pressure to succeed. Like, mm -hmm. and, and if things weren't going well, it, I would catastrophize like, oh my God, it's like the world's falling in. Like with my first startup, you know, the first venture yeah. funded one, the first one that I bootstrapped did really well. But this, the second startup, which I got venture funded, Spider Dance, it was just like when things were falling apart, I took internalized it all. And that is very bad for you. Like the stress levels go through the roof. Uh, you uh, tend to blame yourself for mistakes you made. What you have to realize is the world is unpredictable. There are so many variables out there that are out of your control that you cannot control them. You have to step back and say, I'm on this for the ride, for the crazy ride. And whatever happens, it's going to be a great story. Like it may not be the ending that I would have written, <laughs> Yeah. But it will be uh, uh, an experience for me to have. And if you take it that way, like the stress becomes much less because now when I'm trying to close a big deal, I don't pressure myself. I'm just like, if that deal closes, oh, we'll celebrate. And if it doesn't, well, we'll do something else because I've learned that there's all, as long as you're breathing, as long as you are mobile, like you can get around somehow, you, you can do more things in your life. So if you're not dead, you, you got another shot. And so don't put all the pressure on this one thing, because honestly, you know, there's a good problem. 90% of like tech startups end up just failing. Like they don't make it to these big unicorns. We read all about the unicorns, but there are far more failures out there. And even of the ones that succeed, the 10% that are doing well, very few of them are doing like the next Google or Facebook, you know, they, they're getting by. So as an entrepreneur, just be in it for this, you know, your life is a series of experiences. It's not what you accumulate in the end. All the money, you could have all the money in the world. It's really going to make no difference. You're just going down the same path anyway. You're going to just die at some point, but you will not be able to get back that time and those experiences and the great joys and the great, you know, anticipation and those you should revel in, those you should savor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, you know, fortunate. I got a, you know, a, a wonderful wife that kind of like, time to stop, you know, like have a, you know, you got to be present at this moment. I'm just curious. As Yes. Wife know, and kids. Right? I know you have kids and yeah. that honestly uh, creates a real balance in your life and can give you perspective. But even if you don't have those, you need to make people with those just ignore their wife and kids, then they have no perspective, right? So they're no guarantee. You have to make the perspective yourself. Yeah. And is that, it's just a matter of like, as you like carving out time along the journey to, just to enjoy it, right? I, I, I think two things. One, yeah. carving out time to have fun, right? Now, if you say you have to work all the time because you're an entrepreneur, you're in a way just condemning yourself to a life of drudgery like you have to where you never get a break like you're the worst you know often we are our worst taskmasters like we punish ourselves more than any any other boss could possibly do so you don't want to be a bad boss to yourself you want to be the type of boss to yourself that you would like somebody else to be if you're working for them 
um, really cool, sympathetic, you know, empathetic, will, you know, support you. That's how you want to talk to yourself. Um, so imagine that you're your own boss and how do you want yourself to treat, you know, play a role playing game in your head where you listen to how you're talking to yourself. Is that a nice way to talk to yourself? Would you want somebody else to speak to you that way? Well, if not, you can change it because it's you that's doing it. So you have the power to do that. So that's a really good tool um, for uh, setting your uh, frame of mind and, and approaching life. And then the other thing is um, the ability to just let go and appreciate what you have. Like, you know, there are so many little things in a startup that you can just say, oh, I got that done. Or you can say, wow, that turned out really well. You know, that podcast was like amazing. That was such a great experience, you know? Or you could just say, it's something I have to check off my list. Like I got another podcast done, now on to the next thing. I think taking the moment to appreciate what you've accomplished every step along the way will really uh, boost you and, and actually end up making you more productive and definitely happier. Productive is actually a great kind of segue, I guess, to my next question. So how do you, how did you in time, um, you know, figure out how to kind of prioritize yourself that so, you know, you've, um, this is maybe a selfish question, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through the same stuff. How do you kind of then, um, was there a time point in time where you're like, I need to kind of schedule myself a bit better here? Absolutely. So my big problem wasn't that I wasn't efficient. Like I'm a hard worker. Like I'm too hard. Like I push myself really hard. I'm always like, I have tasks to do and stuff. The biggest, the hardest problem is to know what to be working on. So I have found in my life uh, through all my trials and errors that it's not how much you work. It's not how hard you work. It's that you are working on solving the right problems. You are putting your limited energy because none of us can stay up 24 hours a day. Even Elon Musk has to sleep sometime. Um, <laughs> we, but that energy and, and focus you have should be applied towards just a few things that will really make a difference. I call them transformational things, things that will transform your business. So can, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the minutia. Like there's so many little things, people you have to respond to, all the, you know, tasks that are on your plate and, and, you, honestly, 90% of those won't do anything for you in the long run. So what, what do you really want to accomplish? And what are those things that you can see that will make a, a, a significant tangible difference along you moving forward along that path? And taking the time to think about that, not just once, but continually think about that and refine what you do. And hopefully you can start delegating and offloading all that little stuff that seems like it matters, but really doesn't to other people or just ignore it. And that is the challenge I think all of us face. And I even face it today. I'm not perfect at that. Like it's an ongoing project for me. Absolutely. And then do you like, um, and I want to kind of get on to, you know, what's next for founder space and stuff, but I'm curious, is that, is that, um, do you once a year do the, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the plan for the year? Is there a big, you know, the Elon Musk 10 year kind of vision? How do you kind of um, set, set your goals and then kind of reverse engineer it, I suppose? Is there, is that an OKR process? How do you kind of structure that? I think everybody needs a big vision. Like where, where do I want to be in 10 years? Like who do I want to be? What do I want to be? What really matters to me? 
in 10 years. And, and some of that can be what your business achieves. Some of that can be just who you are as a person. Like, you know, what type of person do you want to be? What do you want to contribute or give back to society? What are those things? So you need uh, that big vision. But the big vision won't get you anywhere, right? It's just a vision in your head. Then you have to start to break it down. And I tell entrepreneurs, honestly, because entrepreneur, uh, being doing a startup is so crazy and things are in a constant state of flux. And when you're, when, you're, when you're doing a young company, an early stage company, literally you're very fragile and you're figuring things out all the time. And most of them aren't working. <laughs> they just don't work. And then you'll try something else and you'll try something else. So I tell entrepreneurs, you literally need to be rewriting your plan every week. Like every week you need to be questioning, am I still on the right path? Given everything that I've learned, over the past week and since the inception of my company, am I still going down the right path? Or has new data come out across my path that says that, no, this, this actually will not go, this company won't yield the type of fruit that, the, that I'm planting. I'm planting the seeds now, but those trees aren't gonna grow in this soil. And that, that um, discipline to really um, analyze objectively is, is a tough thing because I will tell you, like I've done this and almost every um, entrepreneur I know at one time or another does this. And that is we fall in love with what we're building. We fall in love with our product, with our vision. And literally information can be coming across our path that contradicts um, our thesis, like what we, what we believe to be true and we will just ignore it. We will just stick with our, you know, we'll have our filters on our biases and we will just charge ahead. And I have literally seen more entrepreneurs fail by sticking with an idea than by changing ideas. Like they just stick with it. No matter what's happening, they're like, I'm doubling down. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sticking to my vision. Well, I found that great entrepreneurs don't stick to their vision. Really great entrepreneurs are constantly revising their vision. They're constantly trying new things. They're constantly looking out at the real world as an experiment and seeing what it produces and then reacting to that and taking the opportunities as they come up. Absolutely. And so just, you know, final question, uh, what's, what's next for, for uh, you know, Steve Hoffman and, and Founderspace? The one thing I know is that I don't know. And the one thing I love is that I don't know. Like, I don't know what's next. If I knew what's next, I would probably stop doing founder space. I would be bored. So the fact is that I don't know where uh, I will take this company next. I know I've gotten it to a point where I'm really happy with it. Um, but I do know what I like to do and what I ultimately want out of founder space. And that is to make a really big positive impact on the world and really work with great, amazing people to help enable them. If I can, now I don't know who those people are. I don't know how that will change founder space or where that will lead us. But I do know that I am on the path now seeking out partners, people like that, that I can bring into the sphere and together we can build really amazing things that will hopefully, ultimately, make the world a better place, which is, we need all the help we can get right now. I'll tell you, so many people are short-term thinkers in this world that it kills me. Like, you know, we're, we're driving our economies off a 
cliff with climate change, you know, thinking of the short term, how much money can we make today? Meanwhile, California, where I'm from, is burning. Australia's burning. You know, it's a, the Amazon's burning. It's a disaster. And people just aren't doing enough. So I want to I want to uh, collaborate with those people. And, and it's not just climate change. It's education. It's healthcare. All of these things. There's so much room for improvement and so many new technologies in the pipeline that can actually make an enormous difference and save us, save humanity from itself. That's who we need to save it from. Uh, we uh, we uh, can use these tools to do that. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Steve. Like, yeah, um, lots to think about there. Um, and I really appreciate there's people out, out there like you doing this stuff. Thank you very much. Sure. And if anybody wants to reach out to me for any reason, you can email me, just go to founderspace.com, click on the contact form, put my name in there and, and they'll forward it to me. Or you can get me on any social network. I'm on like Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it, I'm there. And if you want my book, Surviving a Startup, just go to survivingastartup.com and you can get it. Absolutely. We'll have the notes in the, in the, show, uh, in the show notes. Thank you very much again. Feeling pumped, Steve. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.